Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're talking American myth, American dreams, and American nightmares. Our guest is none other than the big kahuna, Joe R. Lansdale. Many of you will know him from his horror fiction, some from his westerns or his crime thrillers, and many more from his Hap and Leonard series and the TV adaptation. The last thing Joe needs is an introduction from me, but he's, he's getting one anyway. So, Joe is an under-the-radar, genuine American icon, and he revels in rewriting, deconstructing, and, and frankly, taking the piss out of other American icons. Whether it's JFK and Elvis fighting Egyptian demons in a nursing home, or a violent dwarf John Waning his way across the West in my favourite of his novels, The Thicket. Joe has left few cultural stones unturned in his tilling of the soil of American story. And, and that's quite a pretentious sentence, so we'll just move on, as I don't think Joe would appreciate it. His newest book, Moon Lake, is out June 22nd from Mulholland Books, and it's an absolute barnstormer. It's a compelling, easy-to-read holiday thriller and a clever satire on our contemporary politics, all at the same time. It's got nostalgia, both light and dark, racial politics, romance, small-town intrigue, and a whole lot of horrific weirdness that I'll let you discover for yourself. Joe's a, a great talker and a great storyteller, and he has, you know, a lot of opinions. At times, it was hard to wrangle him back to his own novel in this interview. We cover both sides of the American dream. We ask whether a blue-collar youth makes for more interesting writing, and we consider which country music star Joe is most like. Oh, and we kick the shit out of Trump. So come with me to a tiny town in East Texas. We're parked on a bridge above a lake, and the car is starting to tip. Let's talk scared. Welcome to Talking Scared, Joe. How are you and where in the world are you today? I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I'm in Nacogdoches, Texas. That's East Texas. And I'm in my home out in on our, our 10 acres of woods and pond. East Texas. We'll, we'll get to that in due course because it's a part of the world that seems to throw up its own uniquely dark perspective in, in, in books and in, in films and things. So I do want to talk about that. Okay. But first of all, a sincere welcome and thanks. You almost certainly won't recall this because you're a much busier man than me, but but back in the middle of last year, before I'd even put out an episode of this show, I, I tweeted a list of my dream guests, and you were the only one from that list to respond at the time. <laughs> uh, and it was with a suitably laconic, we can make this work. And finally, after many months, we have. You've got a book out, and I had an episode slot, and here we are. You bet. The book in question is Moon Lake, your newest from Mulholland Books, and it's out on June 22nd. My copy arrived in time for me to take it on my first holiday in over two years, and it's it's the perfect holiday read for those of who are morbidly inclined. <laughs> Can you start this conversation off by introducing us all to, to Moon Lake? Yeah, I'll do that without giving too much away, but... The main character's name is Daniel, and he and his father are on an old bridge over a lake called Moon Lake. 
And his father is from that area because used to beneath those dark waters, there used to be as a town, a village, if you will. And uh, that's where the father was raised. And he stops there to tell his son about how, you know, where he grew up and how he met, um, uh, you know, his mother, Danny's mother there. And um, everything seems like it's kind of just nostalgic, you know, reminiscing. And then that a little bit, the son starts to realize that this is getting kind of strange. And the father then just drives a car through the bridge and out into the lake uh, in an attempt to drown them both. But the pressure of the water knocks Daniel back through the the rear glass and out into the water. And he looks up and here comes someone swimming toward him, which he thinks is like a mermaid. And as she gets closer, he realizes that it's a, a, a black girl about his age who grabs him and pulls him out of the water and saves him. And so that's sort of the, the opening. And what, what you, I'll tell you a little bit more here, what's going on in some ways is that he is kept by this black family uh, for a while until his aunt comes back from Europe and then takes him in, in another town altogether. And then, uh, of course, there's a lot of other things that go on during that time, but then it jumps to the 1970s and word is they found the car. And so that begins the mystery, that begins the crime novel, that begins the dark side of the novel, the darker side of the novel, I really should say. And uh, so the rest of the book is him trying to uncover the truth about why his father did this, what is the mystery of that old town that was under Moon Lake and soon will be again when the, the dry spell ends. And he meets a lot of different characters who are associated with this. And he also reconnects with the, the girl who saved him, who like him is now a, a, an adult, you know, so, and she, she works as a police officer and she's one of the early black police officers in that area and so on. And, uh, I think that, uh, I think it's pretty gripping. That seems to be people's response to it. And it's nostalgic in a sort of dark nostalgic way. So maybe without giving too much away, that's a good way to lead you into the novel. It very much is. I mean, it seems like you've said quite a lot there, but it's a testament to how kind of action packed and how event packed this novel is that you've you've barely scratched the surface. I mean, it's it's not the longest novel in the world, but it has a slightly epic feel across these different timelines. Yeah, I think so, too. I was surprised when I finished it and it wasn't as long as I thought it was. Um, and, you know, I didn't think it was dull. I thought it was very fast paced, but I felt like, man, I've covered a lot of ground and I did. But it, it has an epic feel in, um, in a shorter form. It does. It, it, has, it, it feels like a book written by someone who knows very much what they're about. Because to get that much incident into a novel like this and for it to still feel very um, slow-paced and, and luxurious and indulgent, it, it, yeah, it's quite the feat. The, tonally... A book I would compare it to, and this is because I don't want to say too much about your book and give things away, but to to kind of alert my listeners to to what they might get from it, it feels to me very much like something like Stephen King's Joyland. I've never read that. I have it. I'd like to. That makes me want to read it more. <laughs> Topically completely different, but tonally very similar. That that blending of light and dark nostalgia. Uh, you, you you want to go to 
Moon Lake. And at the same time, you really don't want to go to Moon Lake. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's Right, exactly. Yeah, it feels like that. Well, first of all, to start off in what may seem like a weird place, but also in quite an, an appropriate place with the first line of this novel, something I don't normally do. But this book opens with a killer first line. And the first line is simply, my name is Daniel Russell and I dream of dark water. Now, fans of your work, I imagine, will immediately stand up and take notice because that can't help but bring to mind your much-celebrated 2012 novel, Edge of Dark Water. Uh-huh. And I read the two books very close together in time, and it does feel like they are sister texts or, or cousins to each other, in, insofar as, you know, kind of tone, but also also content. So so I like the fact that both books contain a, an itinerant figure living in the woods, though yes. the one in Moon Lake is is quite a bit more benign. Yes. If you also go back to my novel, The Bottoms, it has the goat man that lives in the woods. So there there, there seems to be a theme there. <laughs> well, indeed. And is this something that you are intentionally toying with? Or is that just a happy accident from your subconscious? I think it's I think it's a little of all of those things. I think that I grew up in the woods and there were always these mysterious stories about people living down in the woods. And sometimes you would come across somebody who was living pretty, pretty wild. You know, they were living down in the woods and, you know, no telling who they were. They could have been uh, criminals. They could have just been people that were poor. They could have been a lot of, you know, people who were, uh, you know, having mental problems. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but once in a while you'd just be down there, you'd come across somebody, no car was out there, no real camping equipment. And they had sort of rough shape, some sort of uh, living space. And, uh, you know, that happened maybe a couple of times when I was growing out, once out by the river, once deeper in the woods. And uh, it also scared me a little when I was a, a young person because there was something about both of those people that was uncomfortable. And it may have just been that they didn't want to be found out or they just did not want to be bothered. So that I think that's always in the back of my mind. And also the all of the stories that I I like uh, you know, when I was younger, often had something to do with some secret agent of some sort. And I, I don't mean that in the sense of James Bond, but someone who lived in secret and who uh, was either a threat or they were just the opposite. But you didn't know that until, you know, later on. There's a uh, the, the Dickens novel, Great Expectations has the convict, you know, early on, and uh, he's looking for whittles. And somehow that always, or what we call vittles, and that always stuck with me, that that moment when uh, he meets, is it Pip? I can't remember. It's been a long time since I read it. Yeah. Yeah, he meets, he meets him in that graveyard. And somehow I think that that has a lot to do with it. The stories about the goat man when I was growing up were all over the place, you know. So... You know, that 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 certainly is part of it. And I think probably writers work out ideas they have more than once, especially if they're relatively prolific writers. And, um, you know, you're you're working ideas out yourself. You're trying to understand who is this and what are they and what does it mean to the characters? Amazing. I mean, I could talk about the goat man all night. I could entirely hijack this conversation and just talk <laughs> about that, but probably best that we don't. Um, but as I, as I said, it's a killer first line. Um, Moon Lake is full of killer lines. And I mean, 
I'm quoting a lot of your own work at you here, Joe, and it, it's, a, it's a bit cringe, I apologise, but there are some sentences in this book that just kind of made me either wince or or burst out laughing. And, I, and I'm going to read a, a few. There's too, far too many to list them all. But here's a, here's a brief selection of some lines from this book. You describe someone as having a hippie look and a Wall Street mind. <laughs> you say that in that part of the world, floods are as common as buttholes. And these are my favourite two. One character says that her husband would screw a knot hole in a tree in case a squirrel was bent over inside picking up an acorn. (laughs) And potentially my favourite sentence I've read this year is, (laughs) there was enough room in her ivory white shirt for two children of moderate size, one of them riding a pony. (laughs) Right, so, so before we get to the horror and the darkness of this novel, let's talk about this. Your books are full of these kind of quirky, for want of a better word, epithets. And I was trying to think of a way to describe them. And it's it's kind of like Oscar Wilde by way of Raymond Chandler. Yeah. When you're writing a novel, where do you get these from? Because if I came up with one of these, I'd be delighted. And it's like just this endless train of witticisms. And, and they have this flavour of sayings that have been passed down through generations in your family. Where are you getting them from? Well, some of them have been passed down through generations in my family, or, or actually more more broadly, uh, East Texas when I was growing up. And others are, because those sayings were so vivid to me, they, they sort of created other versions, you know, and other ways of looking at it. And you can add to that, uh, that uh, writers that uh, like Raymond Chandler and people like that, and old movies, the old 40s movies and the way people talk, uh, probably had a lot to do with it. But also East Texans uh, talk very much in metaphor and simile and uh, outrageousness, you know, and hyperbole. And so I, I borrow from my culture and mix it with my, um, I guess you would say my learning. And uh, so all of that comes together to kind of create that mindset. But it's pretty much the way I think, you know, and it's I don't really think about creating them. I don't keep a list of them or anything like that. They normally just come when I'm working. And uh, in fact, I have to cut out like 50 percent of them because there's too damn many. And so uh, I just cut them and I figure that if I need it again, it'll show up in a later novel or story or what have you. So for me, one of the easiest things to do is that. Now, they other people can judge how effective it is, but I've always had an inclination toward that kind of thinking, that kind of comparison. And I think it also grows out of like when I was growing up, like my father couldn't read or write. And I knew a lot of other people that could not read or write. They often use broader expressions to explain things um, that could connect to something they knew and that others would know, at least during their generation, instead of trying to find some highfalutin word they didn't really know or understand. And so I think that also has a tremendous amount to do with it. You mentioned whether it's effective. It very much is because they indicate character a lot of the time as well. And they, they create a warmth for me. Well, you know, I've done all kinds. I've done the really, really dark stuff, but this is more my, uh, I guess, my comfortable wheelhouse if you would say, but I always at the same time try to challenge myself to approach a story in a different way or to dissect a story I've already written and look at it from another angle and find a new way of telling it. So I do both. And, uh, you know, I'm doing one now that's totally different than this. So to me, I always kind of 
you know, go where my enthusiasm takes me more than what I think, you know, somebody's looking for. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to be universally admired. I don't write for the reader when I'm writing, I'm writing for me. I write like everybody I know is dead. And I've said that many times and, and because I can't figure out what anybody else wants other than what I want. And then of course, when I'm finished, I hope somebody likes it. Then I can have a new attitude and go, well, I hope somebody likes this now. But, you know, I'm done. I'm already moved on to something else. But I, I just learned a long time ago when I tried to figure out my audience, I realized how ridiculous that was for me. You may be able, if you're clever enough, to figure out that the bestsellers have this amount of romance in them. They have this amount of dialogue in them. They have this kind of character, that kind of character. I, but I never could. And so I also found that many books that I would read, I had read so many that I, within a short time, I already knew what they were doing. So I felt like the books that, that I liked the best, like, and we'll just use Raymond Chandler, the crime writer, for example, is I don't care how it ends. You know, I'm just so excited by the prose and by the by the poetry of it, it's rhythmic, but and, and it has a certain description and it's cinematic to some degree. You know, I never stop and think I'm going to write this for the movies, but movies have certainly as have comics and paintings and you know radio shows and all manner of things influence the way I think and the way I write. Well, that variety and that, that refusal to cater to a market is obvious at the most cursory examination of your career. You made kind of a big splash with your short horror fiction really i mean titles like the night they missed the horror show tight little stitches in a dead man's back on the far side of the dead of the cadillac desert with the dead folks i mean they're all fantastic titles mm-hmm. uh, so you made a name with those then then you got lumped in if you'll permit me i think wrongly with the splatterpunk stuff in the 80s yeah and then just as the horror boom was taken off in the 80s, you seem to move away from that mainstream kind of boom towards a blend of noir and mystery and Western and Southern Gothic. And, and this may sound like hollow praise, but it's sincerely given. I can't think of any other author who more honestly merits the claim to inhabit a genre all of their own. <laughs> Have you always considered yourself a bit of an outsider? in literary terms? I, I, I don't know that I, I sat down and thought of it that way, but I, I certainly seem to have been received as either one thing at one time or another thing at another time, but never comfortably by a larger group as any one thing. You know, I've, I've been very fortunate because it's been very good to me. I mean, I've made a good living. I've had movies and TV and animated. I, you know, I've written scripts and things like that. I've made good money. So it surprised me to tell you the truth. It surprised me that I could actually even write well enough to make a living. And it's been far more successful than making a living. But I, I decided early on, having grown up blue collar and and seeing friends of mine, you know, they were going into the foundries and things. And and I worked at aluminum chair factory. I worked uh, as a farmer. I worked as a bouncer, uh, all kinds of things. And I, I thought, you know, if that's what a person wants out of life, that is fine. But that's not what I want out of life. And my mother and father always encouraged me to to rise above, uh, you know, my circumstances you know, so I, I think that I was driven to do this. I've always wanted to do it. and But yet I never wanted it to become successful in the sense 
that I really wrote the same book over and over every time. Now, some of us, you know, and even me, we can't avoid similar themes or, or, or reapproaching a theme or dicing and slicing a theme. But I, I read books and some of them by friends of mine and some of the friends have told me this, that they're miserable because they know that each time out, they have to write a book that appeals to a specific audience. And I, like I said, I write like everybody I know is dead. And I always say, fuck the audience when I'm writing. When I get through, again, it's not because I don't appreciate the audience or they don't care about the audience, but I think I'm going to have a better audience that understands me if I write for me and hope like hell it appeals to a lot of people or a large enough group. But I also know some of the things I write are not. Some of the things I write are going to be more cultish. Other things I write are going to be more mainstream. I never try to decide well, am I, am I got, have I got to stay in this cult? Am I going to be interpreted as mainstream? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't care about any of that. You know, I, what I care about is this the story I want to tell right now. You know, I'm writing a kind of quirky crime novel right now that deals with cults. And uh, I'm also writing a short story that deals with shooting marbles and one that's a Western with Edgar Rice Burroughs and the Apache Kid and Nat Love. And I've got a sort of, I don't know, crime story going at the same time. And, you know, to me, I, I just, I want to get up and be what I have been all my life. And that's excited. And especially during my writing career, excited. I only work about three hours a day because I, I start getting diminishing returns after that. But when I get up 99% of the time, when my feet hit the floor, I'm excited. I'm happy. I'm ready to go. And in three hours, I'm done. I might write three pages. That's my limit is three to five. But I might write 20 or 30 in that same three hours because it's nestled up in there and it's wanting out. So to me, it's really about it's not really so much that I sit down and say, I don't want to repeat myself. It's more about I don't want to write books that don't allow me to be excited. Even if I wrote a series and there was a similarity to it, as long as I'm excited about it, I don't care. I'm I'm happy that way. And as long as I can make a living at it, I mean, you got to be realistic. I'm, I, it's not like uh, the water department is going to take my, uh, you know, my intent for the payment. So there's all of that, you know, there's all that stuff that mixes in. But I do know that unlike some writers, I'm pretty happy with what I do. And I'm not somebody who loves having written. I love writing and having written. You mentioned right at the start there, actually, about having lots of different jobs. Oh, yeah. Um, when you read the author bios of most of my favorite authors, they've had a whole raft of jobs that yep. have got nothing to do with each other. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. said, bouncer and other yeah. things. Like, do you feel that, that 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 variety in life has kind of afforded you some, I don't know, perspective or or whatever word you want that that, that makes you a more varied, interesting author? Well, I, you know, readers would have to speak that they think I'm more varied or interesting, but I, I, I do think that most of what I did was just out of survival. It wasn't like I was thinking, oh, you know what? I'll learn this about the aluminum chair factory or the mobile home factory or bouncing in, you know, which is you're, you're in some club or something and you're there to take care of people if they get out of line, which mostly they don't until you stand around a lot. And I, I wanted to farm because I always loved farming. And my wife and I did that and had a goat dairy for about two years. But we realized that it was too uh, dependent on the weather. It was too dependent on disease. We were doing organic farming and I really liked it, but I couldn't look at that and see myself doing it all my life. And add to that the fact that ever since I was four years old, I knew I was going to be a writer. I had no idea that 
writing was a career or that you made money from it. But I knew that when I read comic books, I wanted to tell stories, you know. So I did all these other jobs and I went to the university some. I never graduated. I ended up with about 60 hours over four years or more. And uh, I loved it. I, I loved education, and I but I couldn't afford it. And uh, I, I thought that what I would end up doing eventually was getting a degree teaching and writing part time so I could afford it. But I started selling articles when I was 21. And by the time I was mid late, you know, 20s, I was selling short stories. And then when I was 29, maybe a month away from being 30, I went full time. And I have been full time now for not quite 50 years. So I've done writing longer than I did the others. But those things you do early in your life. And I also worked on garbage trucks, brush trucks, street department, and I taught at the university some later, uh, but I always felt that I wanted to be fortunate enough to be able to write at least part-time or to make at least a, a decent living. And I got more than all of that. So, uh, but I think all of that past and that blue collar background gave me a sort of steady approach to it. I, I don't really care for the people who, you know, talk about crucifying themselves every morning to write and how miserable it is and rolling around <laughs> and looking for the right word. I, you know, fuck them. If that's what they want to do, that's fine. But I think I'm doing good work. I'm doing my work. And uh, I just, I, I feel like that if you delight in something, which doesn't make it easy, don't misunderstand me. It can be difficult, but it can still be fun and it can be interesting and it can be exciting. I mean, there are times when, you know, you're shitting bricks trying to get this thing just right. And the idea is to make it look easy. And, and sometimes if you do that, people don't realize how difficult it is from the standpoint of trying to make a sentence right, trying to make a paragraph right. And then when you look at it later, you could always say, damn, I could do that better. But to me, that's, that's kind of my perspective on all that. That's how your work comes across. It comes across as freewheeling and easy. And, and the word I always come back to with you is laconic. But the, the reason I ask that question really is, I mean... It runs the risk of getting a little bit of a uh, a working class chip on my shoulder. Yeah, um, and I'm not trying to say that. I just do feel like people who've had a, a varied first few decades just write more interesting stuff. Yeah. Weirdly, it comes from, from a personal perspective of my own. So, in a lot of people's eyes, I'm the absolute quintessence of like you know metropolitan liberal elite. I went to university and did spent forever at uni doing things. But like what a lot of people don't know is that I throughout my teens I worked in a, you know, a rough ass garage fixing cars. And then I went to Switzerland. I was a nanny looking after a little kid. And then I worked with young offenders. And and I'm writing a book now or trying to and it feels like I've learned something that I from all of those things that I can bring to what I'm writing, however small it may be. Yeah. And I just feel like, you know, the, the idea of somebody doing an MFA and then they go and write the novel about, you know, middle-aged neurosis, that can be fine. But it just feels like having stuff in your back pocket helps. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it doesn't interest me a lot. You know, I, I'm not interested in somebody that can't decide whether they want to mow the grass or not, you know. And I I, I feel like that I bring both literary and pulp to my work because I'm, I'm excited about both. I've been influenced by both stylistically literary fiction that has influenced me the most character wise dialogue is somewhere in the middle there. And, but the engine that drives my stories is often comes from genre, but it's an engine that's that I've resouped up to suit me, you know, and I've done all that, but being a blue collar writer, I, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, 
take him to talk about being working class hero, but I'm just saying for me is all I know, because that is my background. That's where I come from. And I, I, I think I like novels and stories for the most part, not to have the stink of the library on them. And that's from somebody that reads three or four books a week, loves libraries, have a, has a giant library of my own, but I think you've got to learn from those libraries, but I think you, you know, you need to come back to the things, you know, and you don't have to take that literal. I mean, when I read Conan, I knew that those were like oil field workers and roughnecks and uh, people like that, that he had turned into Conan or, or some of his other, uh, you know, creations, but his background in the thirties depression uh, and where he lived in cross plains became you know, the fantasy characters. And I can read other people who create fantasy or horror or what has, whatever you have. And most of them I can tell have never been in a real fight. Thank goodness. I'm not saying they should have been, but I have been. And I, I, and I, they've never had to think, well, you know, tomorrow I may not have anything to eat unless I can get out here and get some work. Uh, They've never had to deal with those particular things, you know? And so I think that that does give you a different perspective. And I think it also gives me a work ethic like my father had, you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near him. I mean, he'd work eight and 10 hour days. I do three hours of writing and, you know, I feel like a goddamn hero. And, uh, and that, that's exactly what I want. I want to feel like a hero every day because I work seven days a week, unless there's just some, you know, foolish reason that I do not. And by doing that, I'm up in the morning, I'm done. I've got the rest of the day to read, uh, to watch movies, to hang with my wife used to be my whole family, but you know, they've grown up and are doing other things. And I see them a lot and I hang with a dog. I I teach martial arts, uh, once a week, but to me, uh, you know, to be a a writer that would, the kind of writer that makes me happy, it's about doing the things I want to do, limiting it to a certain degree so that I have, you know, fortunately have time to do other things. It hadn't always been that way. But it is that way now and has been for since probably mid 80s, uh, you know, when the kids were growing up. But at that time, I sort of hit it and then I hit it a little bit better by 88 and even better by 1990. And then as time went on, you know, uh, I got the chance to do so many different things that I've always been able and inspired to move from writing a novel to writing a screenplay or writing a short story or you know, I've even done some poetry and I'll, I'll tell you right up front, I'm, nobody's going to mistake me for a real poet, but I've always experimented. I've done some, uh, you know, stage plays. I've got a musical being developed out of a story of mine. And, you know, I work with my kids on screenplays, novels. So to me, it's just all this exciting thing. And there's, I, there's so much that I want to do and so much that I have planned that I know I'll never live that long. But I think that's the way I want to go out. You know, I want to go out with enthusiasm and excitement and plans. I mean, you can hear it in your voice, Joe. You can hear the fervor. Yeah, I think you can. Right. So we've agreed then that, you know, you are particularly diverse in your approach. Where would you put Moon Lake on that spectrum of your writing? I would say that probably it fits more. And I I hate these goddamn boxes, but... We love all these little boxes to put things in, but probably it's more, and, and, it's, and it says, uh, you know, it's an East Texas Gothic. So I'm, I'm certainly saying the more Southern Gothic, like the bottoms and like Edge of Dark Water and um, Sunset and Sawdust and a fine dark line, but yet it's its own thing. It, it almost feels like a transitional novel to me. If no one's read any of my other work, of course, that, that won't mean much. 
but it feels like me as like a transitional novel. And it's not so much transitional to a specific thing. It's transitional in that I'm probably moving in other directions. My wife used to kid me that whenever I became very popular and successful in something, that was, that meant I was going to change. And uh, it seemed that way. You know, I did, um, I started out with crime novels, actually, and crime stories. And then I moved to horror and sort of marginal science fiction. And then I moved uh, back to crime. And then I wrote kind of Southern Gothic and then back to crime. And I wrote things like Jane Goes North, which is not a crime novel. It's a road novel about two ladies having some very strange adventures. I've written Fender Lizards, which is just about a girl growing up in East Texas. And I've written uh, a number of stories, even a romance short story. And I'm just doing all these things that I want to do. I've written Westerns. I've written you know, things that cross genres or mix genres. I think the difference is, is that people say they mix genres, but they don't. They fruit salad genres. They take, I've got a Western piece here, I've got a horror <laughs> piece here, and the, the cowboy is going to shoot uh, a Cthulhu style monster. Well, that's, that's fine. And, and, you know, I've done some of that too, but the really good stuff, the stuff that I'm most excited about is not a fruit salad, but, but like putting it in a blender where you can no longer tell which is which, but you can taste it all, not taste it individually, but taste it all as a unit. That's a beautiful way of putting it because that is exactly what Moon Lake does. It, and it, and it transitions within itself because it starts in a very gothic register with this kid in the car with his dad and you don't know what's happening. And then it becomes, it becomes quite a benign story for probably a hundred pages. And it kind of lulled me into a sense of security. I was thinking, I was enjoying spending my time in this kind of sunlit little town and, and seeing, you know, whether the main guy was going to get the girl and all this sort of stuff. And then (laughs) then all of a sudden it just goes kind of batshit crazy. And, And I won't say why, but the horror for want of a better word, very much comes to the fore towards the end. It, it's going to be a difficult one to talk about it in any degree of specificity without ruining it. So I'm yes. going to be careful. But for example, I think how to di- how to discuss this. Um, you describe the villains of this piece, and I'm not even going to say who they are, right? But you describe the villains as the worst manifestations of the American dream. Yeah. And, and it, it felt to me in some way that this is actually a political horror story. You're right. I'm going to say, do you see some truth in that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing it now, too, in my new one. Well, was this one inspired by, shall we say, recent political events? Absolutely. Was it a response to that? Because it feels like it. Well, I mean, you know, uh, one thing is I, I tried to do with the villains is to make them almost, you know, give them enough human qualities, but to really make them more out there and not up in your face. I mean, I wasn't trying to do, uh, you know, Hannibal Lecter. Um, I wanted them to be almost faceless in some ways and to be a thing, because I think that's what happened in, in the last few years when we had, uh, you know, the dumbass Trump is that what what happened is that you had people following this idea that they could just pour anything into it they wanted that was Trump, who actually had no values, didn't stand for anything, didn't accomplish anything, was a, a pathological liar, didn't even know that uh, 
the in in the Revolutionary War, you know, he said the the British took over our airports, but you guys really didn't take over our airports. We didn't <laughs> have any, and and just people like that. I think this is really this is your role model. After having people like, I mean, even people you might disagree with, your role model is this guy instead of say Barack Obama or John F. Kennedy or Eisenhower. Uh, even Richard Nixon starts to look like the best guy in the world after dealing with this. But you have these people that have latched into this idea that the American dream is only about a specific group. And I, I want to stop and pause a little bit here and say, I'm a believer in the American dream. I don't think it's a myth, but I don't think it's always fair for everyone else. But I have to believe in it because I wanted it and I got it. I started from being poor. You know, I was, I had great parents. I did, I never I never was like the lower level of poverty where we were living in a ditch with a piece of cardboard over us, thank goodness. But, you know, we were poor. I, I pulled myself out of that. I got the American dream because it's not about being rich. It's about being able to pay your bills, uh, afford food, keep a roof over your head, make sure your kids get a chance to go uh, to college, which has become increasingly more and more ridiculous or to do whatever they want to pursue. Uh, you know, those are the things of the American dream. And, you know, we had those, a house, a car and a way to pay our bills. That's the American dream. It's not being rich. That's the distorted part of it. And I'm not against people being rich, you know, but I am saying that the American dream is really about a lifestyle where you don't have to live on the edge of the razor blade. So I believe in that, but I don't believe it's for everybody. And so the book touches on those things. And I say all this with some reservation because I don't want people to think I, I wrote, uh, um, you know, a paper on politics. I didn't. It's a, it's a thriller. It's exciting. It's mystery. It's mystery. But like anything that's worth uh, uh, anything is that it has some thematic depth. Although I had no idea it was going to have that when I was writing it. I don't plot. I don't outline. I don't go in thinking I'm going to say this. But at some point, usually about halfway through, I, I realized that there is something going on. And so, yes, you're t uh, the short answer to your question is yes. Well, thank you for your longer answer. There's an unavoidable kind of crassness to an Englishman talking about the American dream because, you know, it, it's, it's, I have no dog in that fight. It's not really anything I can say, except yeah. for the fact that the, the distorted version that you're talking about is creeping in to my country's politics. Yes, it is. It's the, the idea that accruing wealth without participating in society, that seems to be what it, it's becoming. Absolutely. Get as much as you can without giving anything back and without being a, a, a worthwhile member of a, of a wider community. And that is coming in with the, yes. the essentially the psychos that are in charge yeah. of my country. Well, that's, that's the misrepresentation. Yeah, that's the misrepresentation of the American dream back in the 50s after World War II. Nobody thought of it that way. They knew you could get rich. They And I, I still believe that, that our country offers a lot of that. But it's never been fair to black people. It's never been fair to, you know, people of color and, and gay people and people that, for that matter, females until, you know, later. But when I was growing up, it wasn't fair to women either. Uh but there was this there's this feeling of hope and this feeling of real positiveness, even along with things that were negative, negative, like like racism and stuff like that. And, you know, if you can make this fairer and make people understand it's not about being the richest person on the block 
and that if you are rich, which I'm okay with, but just give back and pay your fair share and know that you're not rich because you're the smartest motherfucker in the box. You're rich because you worked hard, you caught a break, and that's a good thing, you know? But uh, I think that that's some of the problem is the people who feel that they've made it, feel that they've made it because they are special, and those people that didn't make it deserve to suffer. And I've never felt that way coming from a poor background and knowing how hard my parents worked and knowing how hard, you know, relatives and friends and families around us worked, especially black families. I, you know, I know that that doesn't indicate necessarily uh, know how wonderful you are. Sometimes you, you, you know, that person is smart as hell comes up with a wonderful idea, smart idea, and it catches fire. But I think we've got to care about other people without having to, you know, it's not about supporting other people with with uh, money just to support them, but it's about giving people a, a level playing field. It's about giving people a chance. Because I know there were plenty of black people as smarter, smarter than me that did not have the opportunity I had just because of the color of my skin. Well, yeah, and that's actually a, another link between Moon Lake and Edge of Dark Water is the sort of the presence of, of, of racial issues and yeah they're issues that are both present but also obscured behind the veneer of this society and and mm-hmm. i think it, it, in both actually t- tellingly i, I make because i read them in such proximity i was able to spot things and and both novels contain a black character who leaves for the north and then comes back to the south because he's more comfortable with at least naked racism as opposed to um hidden racism for want of a better word yeah and, and i thought that was quite a quite an, an, a nice nicely nuanced point that you brought up but you said about getting a fair shake and and that's essentially what the horror of this novel is it's about this this town that's essentially a, a, this tiny fiefdom that is run by this cabal of rich people who just who just want to keep their money and keep their influence and 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 the you know, the, the analogue to Trump is there and quite obvious. But I wondered, being someone from East Texas and from towns like this, is there any kind of truth to this in these small, you know, these small towns, these white oh, yeah. in the road? Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up with this. That doesn't mean everyone's like that. I mean, always keep in mind when, when you write a crime novel, you're writing about crime and you're writing about some of the more detestable people. That doesn't mean the novel's not, not leaning toward um, the people that aren't that way. Um, you know, I've, I, I feel like that people forget that. They read a horror novel. Oh, it takes place in, uh, I don't know, Michigan and everybody there is horrible. Well, no, everybody in the novel is horrible. So I don't have quite that sort of simplistic view, but I do know that if I'm going to write a crime novel and I'm going to make a point and I'm going to bring, you know, gothic elements in it, then I'm probably not going to be talking about, you know, the more positive side as much, though that there's some of that in the novel, certainly. But I I think that that's it. The other thing is, is that what people don't realize is Texas almost went Democrat and they made everything they could to make it hard to, they did everything they could to make it hard to vote, um, you know, disenfranchise people. But I, I think we've been moving in that direction for a long time. I mean, here where I am is very, very strong Republican. But I don't even mind that. If you're Republican and you're Democrat, we can disagree. I, I, it's, this, it's this sort of third party of Trumpism, which means I got mine. Fuck you. I'm going to get mine. 
fuck you. And so to me, that's what bothers me. It's this whole idea that's no longer about ideas. It It's become a cultural war. And the people that are driving it aren't nearly as many as the other, but there's far too many of them. And they're in the right places for our peculiar method of voting the electoral college. And so therein lies the problem. If we voted just straight across the board, uh, Democrats would win every time. But you know, I, I want some push and pull. When I was younger, I, there were a lot of Republicans that I liked, some I even admired. Uh, I voted Republican for smaller offices, like local offices, when I was growing up and was able to vote. And then, you know, a few years, some years back, I don't vote. I never vote Republican anymore because they've, you know, they've got on the crazy train and uh, they don't even care about facts. And you got even more important, you got a Senate. That's just kissing Trump's ass because they're afraid they're going to lose their power. And you've got Fox News, which has no relationship to the truth at all. You know, any any news outlet can be wrong or have a slant somewhat, but it's crazy. It's like watching this channel that where you have, you know, idiots like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson. And in some ways, and Tucker Carlson's scary because he's not an idiot, but likes to pretend to be on your idiotic side because it makes him money. It makes him popular. It makes him famous. And so to me, all of that's what's driving this. And until we can get to where we agree on facts, which I'm not exactly seeing a, a move toward that, it's going to stay that way because the people that get their news, a large percentage of them that vote for Trump, get all their news from Fox. And the news they're getting, if, if that's all I knew, I might believe them too. I, you know, who knows? So to me, I, I try to be sympathetic for, for people who grasp these, these uh, strange conspiracy ideas and, and theories. But I'm, I, I, to be really honest, I'm not that sympathetic because there's a point what I call the happily stupid. They're not people that are stupid by birth. They're people that are stupid by choice because it suits them. They lack interest in their life. They lack drama. They lack things that excite them. So why not believe that the Democrats are a cabal of blood sucking, baby eating, you know, QAnon uh, folks, that, you know, think that. And I, I don't understand it. I really, I just think, are you really that, that, fucking stupid and the answer is yes yeah and and i will just say because i've been going for nearly a year now and i feel like I, i've built the the base i can say this if anyone is listening to this and is annoyed by anything joe's saying or thinks that tucker carlson shouldn't be fired out of a cannon then you're welcome to find a different podcast yeah sorry man i just told you the truth you know it's the same here it's people people looking at the blatantly obvious corruption and malfeasance and ineptitude and making excuses for it because they quite like the fact that our, our prime minister makes jokes now and again. Um, but I will go no further with that because I tend to get on my soapbox. What I will ask you, though, as, as a linked issue, speaking of that, you know, Democrat, Republican, North, South thing, obviously you had the, the massive big Texas freeze in the early part of this year. Yes. And I, I noticed that you... You actually came out to the defense of Stephen King yes. when he sparked quite a lot of rage with a tweet where he said, you know, hey, Texas, keep voting for officials who don't believe in climate change. Um, and, and you defended him. And you and I had some brief conversation on Twitter about it. I mean, I agree with you, but I was almost surprised you weren't angered by his tweet. What, what, what was your take on all of that? 
Well, you know, I didn't take it personally. I don't think that was his point. I mean, everybody takes everything absolutely literal these days. And on Twitter, it's the worst. You know, that's not what we, that's not the word we use now. That You're wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Oh my God, you're, you know, you're for imperialism and, you know, whatever. And, and some of this stuff, you know, I'm, I'm just as critical of the, the far left as I am the far right, because if you go far enough in either direction, you're the same fucking people. And you're, you're making decisions based on some sort of list where everybody has got to fit and you've got people can't, you know, I, I've seen some people say some right wing things and we're not, I'm not talking about things where they're calling for somebody to be killed or whatever. They just have a different view and people will go out of their way. Oh, we got to cancel this person uh, for this or that. And there are people that they're wanting to cancel that I don't necessarily like either, but I think really, but in Stephen's case, I don't think that was it. I think Stephen was making a point. The reason we have this shit happen is we keep voting for the idiots. And if you keep voting for the idiots, that's going to happen. I don't think he was trying to say, you know, this is a great thing. And, you know, and I, I, I do believe, like I said, that things are changing. But if you, if you keep doing the same thing over and over and, Steve, and keep getting the same screwed up results, then you have not learned a damn thing. And I used to believe that old thing about we learn from history. I don't think we learn a goddamn thing because every 20 years, 10 years, now it's probably even quicker. We just repeat the same stuff over and over and over. And though I've always been something of a skeptic, I fear becoming a cynic because I don't want to do that. I don't want to be there. But I think Stephen was just saying what was true. If you vote for this, this is what you'll get. And that's the simplest aspect of it. And there's been a couple of times when he said something and I thought, really, this is the hill you're going to die on because you're upset that that wasn't the perfection that you had planned in your mind. Um, you know, I, I, I can tell from Stephen's books and, you know, I've met him a little bit. I know his sons who uh, a little who I like a lot. And I, you know, I never get this feeling that here's this ruthless person that wants all of us in the South to freeze. He's trying to say, hey, wake up, pay attention. Yeah, I, I was just really glad that you jumped in because I, I'm a like ridiculous Stephen King fan. Like you know, it's my bread and butter. It was my mother's milk. So I'm I'm predisposed to be on his side about all things. And I was getting I was getting a lot of hate myself for kind of saying what you're saying. But obviously, yeah. I wasn't in Texas. I'm not from Texas, and I wasn't cold, so I didn't really feel like I was in a position to to push back. Right, and you know there are. There are, you know, you could go far enough where I might go, hey, you know what, I don't agree with that. But on the other hand, I'm not going to cancel you because you don't agree with me. You know, if we're talking about, you know, I want to bring back the Nazis and do terrible things to to Jews and, and people that are not in my life. Well, then that's something that's a different thing. But somebody that just says, look, don't vote for these people because they're going to leave you in a lurch. I think that he has the perfect right to say that. Actually, leaping from that to another thing that I've noticed, you mentioned, you know, his kids. Um, Joe Hill called you, and this this has opened up a whole kind of avenue of thought for me that may turn into a an article or something one day. But he called you the the Hank Williams of horror. Um, and I, I mean, first of all, do you have any, any response to that? Is that a thing that you like, or I mean, I, what do you think of that? You know, I don't, I don't take that as, as overly literal. And I don't want to be Stephen King. I don't want to be Hank Williams. I don't want to be any of those people. But I, I think if you, if you look at somebody and say, there's the Fitzgerald of, of crime or horror or whatever, or they're the, 
the Hemingway or the Chandler. The Hank Williams is a is a pretty damn good uh, one to be. I mean, I'm a big Hank Williams fan for one, but second, it's just uh, I think it's accurate in a way. I think it's uh, you know I'm kind of that guy that's uh, self taught. And I'm like, Hank used to write a lot of songs. I write a lot of stories, you know, and he was just, uh, in his case, he was a kind of genius, you know, and in my case, not, but nonetheless, the comparison is, is a nice one. Yeah. I, I took it exactly the way I think Joe meant it. Well, that's good. Cause it, cause it got me thinking about, and you say it's not literal and stuff. I get that, but it got me thinking about, about why I like your book so much. And it dawned on me that your books in the main, as, di- as diverse as they are, have the very same flavor as a lot of the music that's closest to my heart. So mm-hmm. people like Nick Cave and, and James McMurtry and John Prine and Bruce Springsteen. And right. most of all, have you heard of Jason Isbell, the singer-songwriter? No, no, I have not. Basically, everyone listen to this, go and listen to Jason Isbell. He's a, he's a, a singer-songwriter from uh, Tennessee, I believe. And he, mm-hmm. he basically writes songs like You Tell Stories. And it, it made me realize if I had to come up with somewhere to sum up all of your work under one umbrella, it would be to call it dark Americana. Yeah, right. If you had to use a genre, that's such a broad one that it it doesn't feel as restrictive, you know, because Americana covers a lot of ground. I mean, I'm a big lover of American fiction and of American music, and I, I don't I'm, I'm not a snob about it, but I will tell you that's what appeals to me. I read things outside of the U.S. I read different authors. I listen to different music, but that's what moves me, perhaps because that's what I know. But I've always thought that American literature is more interesting than a lot of other literature that I've read. And uh, I've always thought that the music was extraordinarily interesting. I grew up on uh, country and rockabilly and, uh, you know, people like uh, Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley, which who were kind of the punks of their time. You know, you had the punk people who came along later. I always liked those early guys because they seemed to be rebelling against a status quo that was there. And yet they were saying, look, let's, let's change the idea of what music can be. Let's change the idea of what we can say in music, you know, and what we can do as a performers. And so, you know, I've always been influenced by soul music. I love soul music, but then I'll throw you a curve. I love Dean Martin too. You know, I mean, I'm all over the place. I, I love Patsy Cline. Uh, you know, I love Janis Joplin. I, uh, you know, the Supremes, you can't find a much more varied group than that. And, you know, John Prine, Chris Christopherson, um, To me, I think the ones that got me the most, the ones that made me feel emotional about something simple or like a lot of Prine, Christopherson, Hank Williams, they told stories. And, uh, you know, they I just think that that's what I'm after. They tell stories and even the poems that I've written, which, again, I'm I'm not going to hold them up with any great esteem, but they're mostly either either stories or jokes or little things that I think actually do say something. Now, how well I say it is up to somebody else to decide. But all of that to me is, I feel connected to those people. I feel connected to all of those American artists, whether they be musicians or writers or you know, makers of film. I, I, I feel connected to a, a, a kind of a blue collar filmmaker like John Sayles, you know, he, he, you know, he does everything, but, you know, he stars in them. Well, he usually has a part in them, doesn't star in them. He writes them, he produces them, he directs them, helps build the sets 
you know, and I really admire people like that who come from that kind of background and they're just doing it. They're not put off by somebody saying, oh, you know what? You can't do this. You, you can't. Because I heard that a lot when I was starting out, not from my parents, but from people around me. They go, well, these are people in New York or these are people in Los Angeles, uh, you know, and that's what they do. And they've been to school to learn how to write. And, you know, I didn't believe any of that or I refused to believe it because I had the burning passion to tell these stories ever since I discovered comic books and Rudyard Kipling and, and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs and all of those, Jack London, Mark Twain, certainly. All of those people early on, and then later on is Chandler and Richard Matheson and Ray Bradbury and, and Hemingway and Fitzgerald and, and to some extent Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor for sure, Carson McCullers, I mean, you know, Hammett. Kane. I mean, the list could go on endlessly, and yet it it crosses boundaries. You know, Barry Hanna. Uh, I like experimental fiction. I like very traditional, straightforward storytelling. So, to me, as long as it works for me and it excites me, uh, then I'm in. There's so much to unpick from that that I agree with. Um, first of all, I've got about 18 things to say now off the back of that. First of all, um, if everything you said. You have to listen to Jason Isbell. Okay. I'm going to email you after this with some, some song suggestions. But he has a song called Decoration Day and one called Live Oak. And it's like they've taken your books and set them to music. Honestly, you'll, I, think, okay. I think you'd be interested at least. Secondly, that list you've given there is, is a kind of comprehensive legacy of, of American art and culture. And it, it's something that I feel a weird affinity with because living in the middle of Lancashire in the UK with with no link to the US I, mean, I only went to the US for the first time when I was I think I was 22 I um I grew up just imbibing this American culture you know your book Stephen King book you know um all the films my favorite film is Forrest Gump this is a horror <laughs> podcast and my favorite film is Forrest Gump because it's a film about the myth of America yeah you know, you say you don't want to be a cynic and it feels like on one hand, you can be very, 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 very cynical about America, about its institutions and its corruption and its prejudice. But at the same time, for me, from overseas, there is this myth of America that is almost like impervious to corruption. Well, you know, I, I, that's that that's that whole uh, it's a mythological look at things that really do exist. But there's also obviously that darker side that exists. These things are parallel. I mean, I've been all over the world and I've, I've been to so many wonderful places. But I, I have to admit, I'm really glad I live here because it's what I know. I grew up with it. Be like you, you know, you grew up in Britain. So that's what you know. So we all kind of have that as long as you've got a certain amount of freedom which, you know, you know, it's kind of scary right now, but we've had the kind of freedom to do things and you've had the kind of freedom to do things. And, and so to me, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great place to live. It's a great, and the people are great. Even those people who are, you know, kissing Trump's ass are the same kind of people. If I had a flat, they'd pull over and help me change it. Even if they knew that I was an atheist and a, a, a a Democrat or some, you know, liberal Democrat, at least uh, liberal in the general sense of that word, they'd still do it, you know? And I think that that's that rock hard center that I admire and that I truly believe in. And I keep hoping will once again surface in a broader um, way than it is, has been lately, you know, cause we're, 
We're, we're, we, do, we do fine. If we don't talk about politics, they don't talk about religion. People just assume you're all right. <laughs> well, to do that, to bring it back from politics and to bring it back for the last few questions to your actual writing, talk about that mythic scope. We, we said that this book feels longer than it is. It, it feels like you've been doing your own part to add to that, that mythic tapestry yeah. of America. And you write these concise epics, I would say. You know, my favourite book of yours, one of my favourite books I've ever read is The Thicket. And mm-hmm. those books, they feel like something akin to Lonesome Dove, but stripped of all the extra flesh on the bone. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think I do. Do you ever feel like you have got a true massive American epic in your locker? Because I'd love to see it. I've already written it. It's called Paradise Sky. It's my favourite of all my books. And I think that's American epic. Well, this is where I show my ignorance because I haven't read that one. So I, I will yeah, read I it forthwith. I think that's my American epic. I really do. And uh, it's also a fairly, fairly long book for me and, uh, and maybe the longest book I've ever written. And I, I, in my own view, it's my best book and my favorite book. Some people say, uh, you know, that The Bottoms is my best. And that's OK, because you didn't you did hit on something is that I do think I'm creating mythologies based on the better aspects and the worst aspects of my experiences and the culture as I see it. And, uh, you know, it, to me, the, the world I live in, in East Texas, when I write about it is both real and mythological. It's both hyperbole and absolute realism mixed together. The kind of writers that influence that are the, among those who I gave a list for, I mean, Chandler's Los Angeles says he saw it never existed perfectly that way but he knew how to catch aspects of it that people wouldn't that noticed and that stayed with him and and twain his view of the mississippi and all that it's it's mythological and at the same time it's telling you the truth and that's kind of the trick is to try and even if you create myth to tell the truth and if it's fantasy or science fictional or uh, hor- you know, horrific or dark or whatever. If if you can find the truth in the story you're telling or the novel you're telling, it has more resonance, you know. And so, yeah, I think that I think that's right. I think that is what I'm trying to do. Uh, I don't think I and, and you know I'm also a bit heavily influenced by Greek and Roman mythology, somewhat Norse mythology. I'm I'm influenced by tall tales. I'm influenced by storytellers like my father. Uh, that has a lot to do with how my voice sounds in, in stories is listen to my father talk and listening to my uncles talk and listen to friends talk and listen to older people talk and tell stories. That's as big an influence on me as, as reading, you know, maybe not as large a number of, uh, uh, characters are doing that, you know, a number of people, told me stories and I read a larger number of books, but nonetheless, that's a very important part of it. And that comes right from the roots of the land. You know, my father rode the rails just like, you know, people like Jack London who did in the earlier first depression, people don't realize there was an earlier depression in the late 1800s. And, uh, he, he rode the rails, he boxed, he wrestled, he worked all kinds of jobs. He was a extraordinarily strong person. Uh, so all of that stuff, he gathered up all those materials, both true, both untrue, and both true as he saw it. And as he told all those stories to me, I sucked them in. I sucked them in. Other kids were out chasing fireflies, and I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, some way I've got to find a way to, you know, to express this. I, and I wasn't even thinking about writing 
or anything, but I just knew that I was being filled up with it and that I, I couldn't contain it forever. I had to somehow find some way to manifest that and to mythologically make it raw and at the same time real, which believe me, is not that easy and not always successful. Well, that's incredible because you've just basically summarized my own childhood, however many decades later, because the, the, the most formative moments of my, of my self and, and of, of like who I am and the way I think. And the reason I do this show is because when I was a little boy, rather than, as you say, running around playing outside or like watching TV, I used to sit at the table and talk to my dad and he would tell me about Greek legends and Norse legends and, you know, and, and yeah. Roman legends and all of that stuff. So yeah, I, I, I can completely um, kind of respond to that massively. Yeah. yeah. I think Joe, that, that's, that's a nice place to leave it there. We've gone as broad as we can, you know, in terms of creating the American myth. All I'll ask is what's next for you. You've alluded to a few things you've got in the pipeline. What's the next thing we're going to see? Well, I'm working on a novel right now called The Donut Legion, <laughs> which is about cult, and particularly a flying saucer cult. And uh, it's it, and and you know the the weird part is that a lot of it's real. And when you look at it, you go, "My God, this is maybe too weird to be real." And but yet in these in these days and time, uh, maybe it won't seem that way anymore because uh, you know QAnon. If I'd have heard about that years ago, I'd have thought, "Well, oh, well, there's only a handful of." of absolutely ridiculous non-thinking people who would embrace that. So I think that that's the driving force behind this one is this ability to be absorbed by cults. And yet I think it's also a funny novel. I think, uh, uh, you know, it has um, uh, a, a lot of little twists and turns, not to mention a deadly chimpanzee. <laughs> Excellent. Say no more. When are we going to see that? Do you know? Well, I, next year, I've, I've got to finish it. I'm probably about two-thirds through it. And I'm also working on a Western short story that includes Edgar Rice Burroughs, Nat Love, and the Apache Kid, because uh, a lot of people don't realize that Edgar Rice Burroughs, who wrote you know, John Carter and Tarzan, was actually in the cavalry and actually chased Apaches, including the Apache Kid, who was uh, uh, someone who but they don't really know what happened to him, but he was actually in the cavalry and his novel, his first novel under the moons of Mars later released as princess of Mars had starts out as a Western and he's up in a cave and up in that cave, he, there's something strange in there and he ends up traveling from there to Mars by, uh, I don't know if it's uh, some form of telepathy or, you know, I don't know what you would say. It doesn't ever explain that, but I'm trying to write a more realistic Western story that includes those influences that later will, uh, you know, lead him to write the stuff he writes. So that's fun. And I'm doing a, uh, a story on marbles that has to do with demons playing marbles. And, you know, i got a whole variety of different things. <laughs> I do. Excellent. Well, I look forward to all of them and I'm going to go and read Paradise Sky. Um, so to finish off, Joe, I ask each of my guests two questions to kind of end the conversation, uh, if that's okay by you. Yeah. Sorry to put you on the spot with this, but if you could recommend one book, not of your own, mm -hmm. for my listeners to read, what would it be and why? Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. I, I've, I've watched Steve get better and better and mature, and I think with this one, everything that he does well is in it, and it's it's – it's in one way it's it's straightforward in another way it's experimental uh it deals with uh, 
you know, Native American concerns and myths and and characters who are conflicted by all of that. I just think it's an amazing piece of work. And and I, I really love Stephen anyway. I've seen him, you know, just get better and better. And, and you know, his novel, bef- earlier novel, uh, Mongrels, was also a, a real radical change in the way, uh, you know, he was expressing stories before that. He's always been good, but I would certainly recommend those two. And I would recommend his name, Stephen Graham Jones, uh, uh, you know, overall. Yeah, he's on the show in August to talk about um, his new one, My Heart is a Chainsaw. Well, tell him I said hi and, uh, yeah, take care of himself. <laughs> I definitely will. I think The Only Good Indians is now the most recommended book on this podcast. This is this is Stephen's year and that's Stephen's book, you know, and uh, I, I, yeah. I think at least as far as what he is doing uh, – that that's his book. And I think as far as his career, this is his year. And I believe everything will spool out from that. Um, you know, so I, I'm, I've got, I've got my sights on, on Stephen, who I, I, I love as a person, you know, first of all, but second of all, because I just think he's extraordinarily talented. Another Texan, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to talking to him very much. Final question, Joe, this is going to be an interesting one, but what truly scares you? The only thing that truly scares me is something happening to my family. And, and then after that, it probably is some of the political things we talked about. Uh, the, you know, the fear of the ninnies taking over. And uh, I used to never think that was even possible, even when you had stupid stuff. But now you've just got all you need is a centralized group of assholes. And uh, so those are the two things that scare scare me the most is that um political upheaval that breaks what is so wonderful about this country. And second, and more importantly, what, you know, things happening to my family. I don't, I'm not scared of anything supernatural or stuff like, cause I, you know, I don't believe in the supernatural unless I'm writing it or reading it. And, uh, but in, I think I, I look at it as a tool as, as a form of mythology. Uh, you know, it's like vampires. I'm, I'm not religious, but I, I accept, the vampire mythology that you see that's often connected to the church and Christianity, not always, but, but when I'm reading it, I can go, yeah, the cross keeps them back. Garlic keeps them back. But it's those realistic things that scare me. Well, that's evident in the book you just written, because when people come and read this book, they will realize quite how frightening a centralized group of our souls can be. Um, (laughs) And I, yeah, I hope everyone enjoys it. But Joe, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate all your support with the show because, as I say, you've promoted it all over the place for me. You've, you've really been a massive, massive help. Um, and thank you for your generosity. Um, all that is left to say is, Joel Lansdale, thank you for talking scared. You bet. First things first. I am not a liberal elite, nor am I some kind of working class hero with a chip on my shoulder. And neither is Joe. I listened back to that interview and I heard myself saying a little bit man of the people. And, and let's face it, I'm someone privileged enough to spend my time podcasting rather than dodging disasters down a mine somewhere. So it's best to be realistic in my self-portrayal. I did spend the years of 16 to 22 working a stinking horrible job in a stinking horrible garage. And boy, do I have some stories from that. 
But then I also transitioned to working in Lush, selling bath bombs and scented hand cream. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. That said, I stand by the argument that variety and some adversity in youth makes for rich fiction later in life. Joe seems to me to be a living testament to that and you can hear the authenticity in his voice as a man and as a writer. I could have talked to him all night and following this interview I rang my dad and said oh you have to listen next week you'll love it. Honestly guys Moon Lake is great. It's horrible in all the best ways and it's unexpectedly creepy especially considering how benignly it starts to where it ends but it's also riotously funny. As we've covered, there are these phrases and epithets in Joe's work that you just don't get anywhere else. The closest I can think of is John Connolly's Charlie Parker series, which similarly marries horror with laugh-out-loud humour. Or maybe T. Kingfisher's stuff, and you can hear her episode all about humour in horror, something like 30 episodes ago. But Joe is the master of the wittier side. Moon Lake is up there with the very best of his novels, and it reads like he's addressing something serious, definitely serious, but not taking the story too seriously. It's perfect for a sunny weekend day. Definitely check this one out. On a more sombre note, and speaking of taking things seriously, I hope that people who listen to this episode take the point about tribalism and echo chambers to heart, because... They're rarely, if ever, good things. Recent events in the horror community on social media have shown how depressing and harmful it is when we get entrenched and angry and stop empathising. I'm neither established enough in the community or, or knowledgeable enough about the matters at hand to get any deeper into it here. But, well, you know what I'm talking about. And it feels like it's a bit of a microcosm of everything Joel was talking about on a broader political spectrum. And it's been sad to see people get hurt and feel they need to leave Twitter or or feel they need to kind of take a break and stuff like that. It's been sad to see. So yeah, let's all try and cool down a little and save the real righteous anger for the bad guys. That's my small hat being thrown in the ring and my minor treatise, and I'm sorry if that steps on anyone's toes. I just want everyone to be well. What can we say that's more positive? Um, I guested on the Books in the Freezer podcast this week, talking to the host, Stephanie, about my favourite cult novels, and that's cult as in Jonestown and Scientology, not Donnie Darko. It's a great conversation and you'll come away with some great book recommendations. So yeah, do give that a listen. The audio at my end isn't great. Apologies. And I talk far too much. Uh, Shocker. But yeah, it's a great podcast generally. If you like this, I think you'll like that. If you want to get in touch with me, it's always the same. Talk Scared Pod on Twitter or email me direct at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. Come find me on Instagram. I'm making a bit more of an effort there. That's talking underscore scared underscore pod. It's mostly cute dogs and terrible attempts at cool book photos. I'm I'm not the great photographer. Lastly, as ever, Patreon. The link is in the show notes and I appreciate every bit of support, whether this is your first listen or your 40th. I've just uploaded the list of upcoming guests and there will be some bonus podcast content dropping in the next 48 hours for you as well. 
We have a new Patreon subscriber, Carrie Fleming. Thanks very much, Carrie. Welcome to the family and know that you are deeply appreciated. Next week's episode is going to be something a little bit different and I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but yeah, check in next week for guests who anyone in the horror community will recognise. I think you'll like it. But until then, write for yourself. Make it a smoothie, not a fruit salad. Vote for better idiots and be kind to each other. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>